Welcome to MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufjak, and today I wanted to talk about brew events. Before we start talking about brew events, though, I did want to say that we just released a reintroduction episode this week. Um, so if you are new around here and you are curious about this podcast, what it is, why we do it, go ahead and check that out. Um, but for today, we're going to focus on brew events. Now, I will say right off the bat that some people say brew and some people say brewy. I have no idea which one is correct technically, but I say brew. Most people I know say brew. And so for the purposes of this episode, um, we're going to say brew. I think probably both are correct, but it's a little bit of a personal preference. And I like to say brew. I bet there are some people out there, though, that are thinking, brew, what is a brew? I have never even heard of that. I don't even know that brew versus brewy was an ongoing debate in pediatrics. Um, And so for that group of people, brew is a brief, resolved, unexplained event. Basically, what this means is that infants have been terrifying their parents with weird pauses in their breathing, weird abnormal movements, changes in color, since like the beginning of time. And it really scares the you know what out of people. And so in pediatrics, we see a lot of parents bring their children into the pediatrician or bring them into the emergency department and describe, you know, weird changes in color. They turned purple. They stopped breathing. They had a change in tone. They became very hypertonic. They became very hypotonic. And people really want an explanation for that understandably. Um, But it can be really difficult to parse out exactly what was happening at that exact moment um, for a number of reasons, but particularly because the vast majority of the time when they bring the child into a medical provider, they look completely fine. Like the event has resolved and the parent is like, what was that? Should I be worried about it? But ultimately the baby who's sitting right in front of you usually looks completely fine. And so it can be really hard as a physician or as a provider to pediatric patients to sort of figure out what actually happened during that event. And I will say most of the time, these have like a fairly benign explanation. For example, the classic um, explanation is like they were straining to have a bowel movement and they got really stiff and they turned really purple or red, or, you know, they were having reflux. And when they reflux up into their esophagus, Um, It stimulates the vagal nerve, and then they go kind of limp, or they arch their back, turn a certain different color, and then they go limp after that. You know, any of those things are pretty normal experiences for a baby to have. But as a parent, when you're observing that in your child, particularly for first-time parents, um, it can be really, really terrifying. Um, And so pediatricians, I think, for years have been really trying to figure out how best to manage these parents, how best to manage these patients. Um, And we really want to make sure that if there is something serious or life-threatening going on, we diagnose it. Um, But for everyone else who's in this bucket of, it was probably nothing, but it looked terrifying, how do we go back and really reassure those parents that, you know, their baby is probably fine? So I think a really good place to start with this discussion is to go back in, in time and sort of talk about brew events And, you know, these sort of style of events that occur in these infants, what we've been calling them over time and how we've been managing them over time. So 
back in like the 70s or 80s, um, these events were called near-miss SIDS, SIDS being sudden infant death syndrome. So basically what that means is you have this baby who looks like something horrible is happening and they could have SIDS, uh, but then they recover spontaneously or the parent kind of nudges them and then they like start breathing again or whatever, and then it's called near-miss SIDS. So, but this is kind of like a nonspecific diagnosis. So there was some push within the medical community to sort of do a better job characterizing these patients. I think predominantly because once you are able to characterize um, and, and really get a good definition of a certain phenomenon, such as brew events, um, that allows you to study those phenomena. And then once you can study them, you can say confidently, like, you know, X percent of these patients have um, nothing serious going on, and they go on to be totally healthy, normal kids, and then this other percentage of patients go on to have certain medical diagnoses, including X, Y, and Z. And so that's why it's so important to start off with a good definition so that we can, as medical providers and as researchers and as scientists, sort of gather all of that data and then move forward and make advancements in our, the way that we take care of them. So near-miss SIDS was a definition that was really just not cutting it. Um, and so in the 80s and 90s, we moved on and we started calling these events an ALTI. ALTI stands for Apparent Life-Threatening Event. And I mean, this is slightly better than calling them a near-miss SIDS because it has some sort of definition, like it's apparently life-threatening. Um, but as you can imagine, this is still a very subjective definition and so if you have a parent who observes a child, let's say the child is refluxing and they, you know, turn purple, pause their breathing, arch their back, get really stiff, and then they go limp and then, you know, 10, 15 seconds goes by and then they kind of self-resolve because they were refluxing into their esophagus. That would be apparently life-threatening to one parent, let's say a first-time parent, but to a second parent, they would be like, oh, whatever, you know, this is my fifth child, the kid is fine. So it's a very subjective diagnosis. One kid winds up in the ER and the other kid is just still hanging out at home. And so it's, it, it creates this sort of very heterogeneous group of kids that come to the emergency department with something that's apparently life-threatening. For another good example of this is like a seizure. So let's say you have a child who's having an infantile spasm. Uh, you know, one parent might look at this child and think, oh my gosh, like something is life-threatening that is going on with this baby. And a second parent might look at that same child and say, baby is fine. Babies do weird movements all the time, you know? So it, it's, it's a, not a great definition for that reason. Uh, but that was what was used in the 80s and 90s. And what makes this whole thing really difficult is that a lot of the research that has been done on babies who have these weird events where they change their color, they change their tone, they have abnormal movements, they have pauses in their breathing, these ALTI slash brew events, um, all, a lot of that research was done using the ALTI definition. So we'll talk about that in a minute, um, but just keep that in mind as something that has kind of thrown a wrench into our current research and like kind of our trajectory um, as clinicians when we're dealing with these, these kids. So we ultimately decided uh, that the ALTI definition was too subjective. It didn't really create um, 
a great framework for research because you get a really heterogeneous mix of kids. Um, and so in 2016, the AAP released a guideline, and it's, a, it's actually a clinical practice guideline, um, and they said, hey, now we're going to call everyone who comes in with these events, instead of being an ALTI, they're going to be a BREW. BREW stands for brief, meaning usually less than a minute, resolved, meaning when the child presents to the ER or the pediatrician's office or the urgent care or wherever, the kid looks fine, that everything is resolved, unexplained, which is key, unexplained being there is no other more likely cause for that event, and then event. So brief, resolved, unexplained event. In order to have it be an event, um, there's several criteria. And so you need more than one of the following to uh, call a kid a brew. One is cyanosis or pallor. Two is absent, decreased, or irregular breathing. Three is a marked change in tone. That can be hypertonia or hypotonia. And four is altered level of responsiveness. So if you have something that is brief, less than a minute, resolved, unexplained, there's no better explanation, and it's um, an event, meaning that they're either cyanotic, pale, change in their breathing, change in their tone, or change in their level of consciousness, that child constitutes a brew. And also the, the final kind of criteria to qualify as a brew is you have to be younger than one year of age. So you cannot be a two-year-old and have a brew. Uh, it doesn't really work like that in the truest sense of the word. This is mostly pertaining to infants. And so in 2016, AAP was like, hey guys, all tea is now brew. This is our new definition. Moving forward, we're going to use this. And this is how we're going to categorize these patients. Um, the other things that happened and that were described in that 2016 AAP guideline was the idea of being a high-risk brew versus a low-risk brew. And this is really important, right, because we know that most of the kids who have brew events um, end up being fine. They go on to be normal, healthy children. But there is always this fear that, you know, they will go on to have some sort of serious medical diagnosis, which does happen, but it is a very, very small percentage of the time. So the question becomes, how do we figure out who's going to go on to be a totally normal kid? And this was like probably nothing serious. Uh, we can reassure the parents and send them home versus who should we admit to the hospital? Who should we order additional testing on? And who should we observe? And for how long should we observe them? So based on the AAP guideline that came out in 2016, kids who were a high-risk brew were kids who were less than 60 days of age, who were premature at birth, especially kids who were less than 32 weeks gestation when they were born and are currently less than 45 weeks corrected gestation. People who have had over one event, that is a high-risk brew criteria. And then any time that CPR was done by a medical provider. Personally, I don't know why that's even included. Of course, anybody who has CPR done in the field is kind of high risk, <laughs> but that's part of the criteria. So again, those are kids who are premature, less than 60 days of age, had more than one event, CPR was done. Those would be high risk brew. Low risk brew is kind of the opposite. So it's kids who are 60 days of age or older, um, they're full term, they have a normal exam, they did not have CPR done, and they have no red flags on their history. 
And by red flags, I mean um, for kids who have brew, you want to ask about any family history of SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome, anybody who died an unexplained death very young, particularly a child, anybody who has congenital arrhythmias, for example, congenital prolonged QT that runs in the family, that would be a red flag on the history, um, things like that. So, but if none of those things are present, then those full-term two-month-olds who had like a weird movement and now look fine, those are low-risk brews. And so the AAP did lay out some preliminary guidelines as far as how we want to manage these low-risk infants, but they did not lay out any guidelines for how to manage the higher-risk infants. And basically what they said we should do for kids who are low-risk brews is to provide CPR training to the caregiver, educate them about brew events, and then they're safe to be discharged home. Now, what I think is really interesting about this whole thing is that since 2016, we've had multiple studies come out in the pediatric literature that say that most patients who come to the hospital with brew events are actually high risk. There was a publication that came out in April 2020 in Hospital Pediatrics. It was called Outcome Prediction of Higher Risk Brew. They looked at 98 kids who met criteria for a brew event. Um, About 90% of those kids were high risk based on the criteria by the AAP, and therefore about 90% of the high-risk babies were admitted. They were observed for about 24 hours, and out of those infants, only, only four had serious illnesses. One had bacteremia, two had positive RVPs, basically they had a viral illness, and then one had meningitis. So overall, what we've seen through our literature since this has been published in 2016 is that we are admitting a lot of these kids who are higher risk brews, um, but ultimately we're not finding very many serious medical diagnoses in that patient population. So what are we supposed to do with these kids who are high-risk brews? We know that we're kind of over-admitting them a little bit, but we really don't have a lot of data to back up any sort of clinical practice guideline or put any guidelines together because, again, we just started calling them brew in 2016, and so a lot of the research is just now being done on that patient population. In fact, in 2018, there was a retrospective study um, that applied brew criteria to patients who presented with ALTI. Remember that before 2016, all of these kids were called ALTI. And this paper that was published in 2018, uh, they reviewed 320 charts and they um, found that only 23% of the patients who were categorized as an ALTI actually fit the definition of a brew event. So, you know, when we look back at the literature, all the literature that has been published and the data that we have on these ALTI patients, it's kind of apples and oranges at this point, because if only 20% or 20 to 30% of kids who have ALTI qualify as having a brew, we can't really take those conclusions that we drew off of those ALTI papers and apply them to our patients who have brew because it's just not, they're just not the same group of of kids. Brew is a much more streamlined definition and it's a much more homogeneous group of patients. Um, And so that makes our guidelines a little bit more difficult. There was another paper published in August 2019 by the AAP in pediatrics that described management considerations for patients who fall into this high-risk category 
basically, we don't really know what we're supposed to do with these high-risk brew babies. We usually admit them, we observe them, but there is no formal recommendation for the workup for those patients. For example, should they all get labs? Should none of them get labs? Should we do an EKG? Should we do pulse ox continuously? You know, like there's just no data to back up these things that we do. Um, And I think that that will come with time, but that's part of why I'm doing this episode is I just think that this is a really active field of investigation within pediatrics right now. So this paper that was published in 2019 It's not a clinical practice guideline because there's not enough research, like we just mentioned. Um, But they basically said that things that you could consider doing for a high-risk brew would be doing pulse ox, evaluate for child abuse if you're suspicious, or if the um, brief, resolved, unexplained event seems kind of like off to you, or if, you know, you have a one-month-old baby who, you know, had supposedly did something that just a one-month-old baby wouldn't really do, and you're just like, this is a little weird, always think about evaluating that patient for child abuse. Always evaluate for feeding difficulties. So remember things like GERD and um, silent reflux is a, in Sandifer syndrome, what we call Sandifer syndrome, which is where you arch your back and you have that really exaggerated clinical uh, response to your reflux. Those are all things to consider Consider getting an EKG if you think that there's maybe a cardiac um, underlying etiology. Consider getting a respiratory viral panel, plus minus a pertussis workup. Remember, pertussis can cause uh, little babies to become apneic, so always on your differential for a child who comes in with a brew. Um, Checking a blood glucose, remember hypoglycemia can cause kids to be limp or have a change in tone or maybe even a change in color if they have a pause in their breathing. Um, can also cause seizures. So hypoglycemia is something to keep on your differential. And then remember, if you find a death, an explanation, then the child no longer has a brew event because it's no longer unexplained. So when we talk about brew, we're just talking about those kids who maybe had a little bit of a workup, but we still don't ultimately don't really know what actually happened with them. That's why it's such a small and such a specific um, patient population. So those are just some things that were suggested in that paper um, that, again, was published in August 2019 in Pediatrics and kind of things to think about for when you're managing a child who falls into that high-risk brew category. Um, I think right now there's a lot of talk, and there are even a couple papers published in July 2021, which is when this podcast is being recorded, about going back and revisiting our brew guidelines and that AAP 2016 guideline and kind of revamping it and redoing the management um, recommendations for high-risk patients and for low-risk patients. I don't know that we really have the data to, again, really come up with a better clinical practice guideline at this time. But again, I think this is a really interesting um, and very active sort of area of research within pediatrics. And so I hope you all thought this episode was interesting. I think that this kind of stuff is super interesting. And again, this is MD Notified. I am Christine Sufchuk, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the quick notes outline which is available on mdnotified.com. 
The contributors to MB Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.